0: my first time I'm sorry <laughs> um, so I I want to when we enter the Word of God keep that in mind no, it's, this needs to be a Christ centered approach when we enter the scriptures you know it's all about Christ we read the Bible Christ logically people say um, we, we won't go into what that means it's just keep Jesus in mind when you're reading the Bible um, so Let's head over to Luke chapter 5. That's what we'll be discussing today. Luke chapter 5, the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading from verse 1 and Luke chapter 5. Before we do so, let's pray. Our Holy Father, our Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, you inspired Luke thousands of years ago to write um, down an account that's accurate, that's orderly, and um, it was there for the church and prepared and held for the church um, by your providence through thousands of years. And so we thank you for it. And we pray, Holy Spirit. Um, that you would open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, our spiritual ears, our minds, our hearts to what you want to say. I pray, Lord, that you would be merciful to me as I speak, that it would be faithful to your truth, not my truth, not anyone else's truth, not the world's truth, but your truth. Um, and that, Father, you would um, use your word as it goes out, and we know it never returns empty to you. Um, That you would use it to build up the saints, build up the church uh, for your glory, the glory of your son Jesus, um, for encouragement um, of of those who are sitting here and those who will hear the word from those who are sitting here. Um, We pray this, we do this in um, in great consciousness of, of who you are and how dependent we are on you, Holy Spirit, for everything that we have and do and say. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, let's read Luke chapter 5. I'm going to read out of the ESV. You can follow whichever Bible you have. Um, Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. This is obviously a section of narrative text, okay? So what what that means is it tells a story, right, Um, of what happened in the past. Um, And this is quite important to keep in mind when we read the gospel of Luke specifically. If you turn to Luke chapter 1, right at the beginning, you can have a look there. Luke tells us why he's writing his gospel, right? So Luke chapter 1 from verse 1. It says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Remember, Mark and Matthew were written before Luke. Um, Most of us believe that Mark was written first. So, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. All right, so there you have it. Luke's trying to render to Theophilus, and the Holy Spirit's trying to render to us uh, an accurate account of the things that, that happened pertaining to the life and work of the of Jesus Christ. Um, most scholars say some of the best Greek is written by Luke. Um, it's really well written. So before we look at the deeper theological meaning of some of the things that we've been reading, I think it's it's there are many real important things that happen here on a theological level. Um, let's have a look at some of the characters in the setting just to understand because this really is historically um, it's history written down for us. And let's just make sure we're all on the same page as to where we are. Now it says in the beginning, this account is on the shore of the lake of Genesaret. I don't know that name. I, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce that name, honestly. Um, but that's another name, an older name for the Sea of Galilee. And you'd know that name probably most uh, more. more of you would know that name. It's a body of fresh water. water. The Jordan flows into it. And the Jordan River flows out of it, um, and uh, that um, most of Jesus' ministry um, occurs in and around and on it. And the crowd who are pressing in on him are Galileans, they're his countrymen, and they are they're eager to hear him preach. Um, Simon is mentioned. Uh, Simon is probably the most prominent character here, and he's later also identified as Simon Peter, That's the Apostle Peter. Jesus gives the name Peter to him um, uh, later on in their ministry. We read his letters, um, his two letters later in the New Testament. We can probably assume Simon's brother, Andrew, is with him. It doesn't say so in the text, but we gather that from from other places. And They're fishermen, um, and they they fish together. Um, James and John are mentioned. Uh, The James and John that you, you see here are the James and John... That become apostles as well. Um, They're the brothers, they're the sons of Zebedee. And together, these three disciples, Peter or Simon Peter, James and John, they form the inner circle, uh, so-called inner circle of Jesus. Um, uh, And they they probably the the most prominent characters, um, if you read uh, the rest of the gospel, Uh, they mentioned. Um, a lot. For example, it's them who accompanied Jesus uh, onto the mountain in the transfiguration account. Okay. Um, now, just a, a word about fishing in that area. Fishermen uh, in that time around the Sea of Galilee did their fishing at night. Okay. Uh, there are some reasons for it. Uh, I've, what I've read is that the fish apparently went down deeper um, during the daytime. You had to use different nets. So, it was in the morning, Jesus was, was about to teach, and these guys were essentially at the end of the day's work. Okay, they were tired, um, they'd just finished a day's work, which happened in the night. Um, and when Jesus asked Simon then to go fish in the daytime, it kind of went against what Simon knew was good fishing practice. You know, that's, it's not a good idea. Um, And, uh, you know, he'd already cleaned his nets. He probably would have had to clean his nets again. Um, He had his wife. We know he had a wife. He had his wife waiting at home. Um, I can just imagine that uh, it took a fair amount of respect and obedience for for Simon to say, to listen to the carpenter, Rabbi, and say, okay, okay, we'll we'll, we'll go out. Um, We'll talk about that um, just now. So now we know where we are. We know who's there. And um, I think in a a sense part of the text's purpose is already done because an accurate historical account has been given given to us. Now let's look at some of the deeper theological truths. Okay, I'm going to discuss three of them. Um, And you must remember with Scripture, Luke wrote it. The Holy Spirit... Inspired him. So Luke wrote it with a purpose. He probably had people in mind. We know he had Theophilus in mind. The Holy Spirit had us in mind. The Holy Spirit had 2,000 years worth of Christians in mind. Isn't that amazing? If you go look at the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture, it is mind-blowing. The Holy Spirit didn't take over Luke and he was a robot and he went into a trance and his hand was writing automatically and then he woke up. And then realize, oh dear, look at what I've done. You know, I've created this book, this letter, or this gospel account. No. Luke was active, thinking he had a purpose. But the Holy Spirit was active as well. Um, I can go on a little tangent about that. But it's actually amazing to think that Luke was writing and God was writing. It's Luke's words and it's God's words. It's the Holy Spirit's words. So yes, we are allowed to go look at this and think, Even though Luke didn't know our names, the Holy Spirit knew our names and he knew that we were going to read this text. Um, So our first point is obedience, our first theological truth. I want you to look at Simon Peter's response when Jesus asks him to put out to sea, to have another go at fishing. Was Simon obedient? Yes, he was obedient. We've mentioned some of the reasons why he might not have wanted to obey. In fact, he kind of makes mention of it as well. He says, Master, we've been toiling all night, but okay, we'll do it. Um, Jesus wasn't a fisherman. He was a carpenter. Um, We we have no indication in the Bible that Jesus had some special knowledge or or expertise in in the art of fishing. Um, So Luke, um, not Luke. Simon, Andrew, James, John, they knew better. Okay, they knew better than Jesus. But then this really important line comes along. What what, what does Simon say? He says, Master, we've been toiling all night. We haven't taken anything. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Um, One of the commentators on on, on this uh, piece of scripture says, this is the center point um, of of this, this narrative. I think there are a couple of points, but I mean, that's just so important. That line, at your word, I will let down the nets. Listen, just, just try and imagine how Simon could have felt in the scenario. How would you have felt? Um, and um, don't make the same mistake that I make when I read some of these things. I sometimes think, I've got a vivid imagination, just think, wouldn't it have been amazing to be there? Don't you think it would have been absolutely epic to be there and see Jesus teaching, you know, the Son of God. And here are these, you know, heroes of the faith. And if Jesus had told me something like put out to sea, I'd say, yes, absolutely, I'm going to jump at it. That's not the way it was. Don't romanticize this at all. Uh, Simon had a very basic understanding of who Jesus was at that stage. It was still to be revealed to him. It was actually a fairly ordinary morning, I think. Um, And uh, so, I mean, Simon probably felt, you know, very human emotions, like we would have felt. Um, I've written down a few here. Uh, He was likely tired, exhausted, frustrated, irritated. Maybe he was doubtful. Maybe he felt taken advantage of. I just borrowed my boat to you. Now he's saying we must go out. That doesn't make sense. He was confused, distrustful, maybe. Um, Hear me well, the text doesn't say these things. uh, But to me, I think those are the human things that Simon might have experienced at that point. But at Jesus' words, Simon obeyed. Um, The sentence is important. Um, I think it's put in there for our good. And I think we dare not really miss that sentence. So what's the application for us in our lives in terms of obedience? Well, think of the last time you felt like that about something God expected of you. Think of the last time you were expected to do something that takes your time, your effort, your energy, your money. It goes against your instincts or even your wisdom. Um, but you know it's the right thing to do. Often we know it's the right thing to do because it's explicitly said in the Bible. Most things that God asks us... Aren't really difficult to figure out. Um, you might say, no, well, listen, sometimes I really struggle to know what God wants me to do and I'll concede that there are really some tough questions where we have, need wisdom and we need to pray and ask God for wisdom. But most of the small things you do know and I do know because they're written for us explicitly. It might be as simple as going to church on a Sunday. It might be volunteering to help with some ministry. It might be apologizing to your wife or husband first. You be the first one to apologize, even though you know they owe you an apology as well. That's a small thing. It's not an epic, jaw-dropping, life-changing, world-saving thing that you need to do. Nobody's going to know, really. But you need to be obedient. Maybe it's being patient with your, with your kids. I promise you, I struggle with that. After a day's work, when you get home... I want a papa, yeah, a papa there. Maybe being Christ-like and patient and loving and listening to them. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the obedience that you need to do and have. Um, this was a dishwashing moment. Do you, do, you know that, do you know that expression that everybody wants to save the world, but nobody wants to help mom with the dishes? Have you ever heard that? Um, Essentially, what it means is, if Christ walked in here now in all his glory, we knew, we know who he is, we know the history, we've got the Bible, and he said, jump, we'd all say, yes. Okay, if he said, let's go, we're going to go save the world. I'd say, yes, we're going to do it. Um, we'd all do that. But we're not all willing to help mom with the dishes. Because that seems mundane, small, trivial, tedious. See, God's commands are often small little mundane moments. Uh, They like borrowing the boat. Jesus asked him to borrow the boat. I'm sure Simon wasn't thinking, oh, the Son of God, you know, is the Messiah. We're not sure. I don't think he knew it at that stage. He just borrowed the boat. They don't seem epic. They don't seem world-saving. Sometimes God's commands are impractical, they're costly, they're tedious. Sometimes they're downright dangerous. Um, But like Simon, we obey not because of worldly logic, we obey at someone's word. At your word, I will let down the nets, that very important line. Obedience is not optional for Christians. But listen carefully now. Okay, so I won't in my first sermon preach morality to you and miss the gospel. Okay, obedience is important for Christians. Um When we talk about obedience, it's it's a very important point to make. We are not saved by obedience. Okay? There's no work that you can do to get into heaven, to get saved. Alright? Obedience follows salvation. This is really important. Um, You cannot save yourself. Anyone who is saved is saved by grace, through faith. It's a free gift of God. It's not their own doing. You cannot boast. You can't say... You know what? I, like Simon, I did everything that God asked me and therefore I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven. No. First you're saved and therefore you obey. Thanks for the cough, Russ. First you are saved and then you obey. Alright. You're not saved because you obeyed. Everybody got that? That's so important. So that's, that's the first truth. Let's look at, um, let's look at a second truth here. Um, I've called this one the good fear of the Lord. Or Simon's response, I wasn't sure. Um, let's look at Simon Peter's reaction after the miraculous catch. Simon had been obedient, but he clearly wasn't expecting what happened to happen. Um, he definitely wasn't expecting a catch of that magnitude. And listen, this wasn't the first catch or big catch that Simon's seen. He's was a professional fisherman. That's his trade. I'm sure he'd had good seasons and bad seasons. He'd seen, seen nets full of fish before. Um, but how, how did Simon go from seeing a big catch of fish to being overwhelmed by his own sinfulness to such a degree that he fell at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. It doesn't make sense. Like we know the story, so we just read over it. But this guy sees a big catch of fish and then he thinks of his own sinfulness. And what's that got to do with Christ? Why, why would he think of his own sinfulness and ask Christ to depart from him? Um, those things don't necessarily make sense. You would have... Expected him to have a reaction of joy or relief. <laughs> He's just been working all night. No catch. Now he has a massive catch. Boats are almost sinking. They're filling both boats. Um, he likely made a lot of money, by the way, You know, with that catch. Um, what happened to Simon here? In verse 10, Jesus responds to him with the words, Do not be afraid. So we can assume that Simon was afraid, right? Doesn't say it explicitly, but it kind of seems that way. Jesus didn't get things like that wrong often, I think. And so, why was he fearful? Now, to illustrate that, I'm going to take you to two different places in Scripture where we see similar reactions by other people when they're confronted with God. Okay, we're going to read. You don't have to turn there. If you want to, you can. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 3. Exodus um, we're going to look at Moses, and then after that I'll read from Isaiah chapter 6. We were in 66 just now, but we'll we'll go to Isaiah chapter 6. So let's look at Exodus chapter 3, and I'll just be reading from verse 4. No, I'll be reading from verse 3. If you don't know the story, uh, Moses is looking after sheep, you know, in the it, it all, in my mind, is desert, but I, I know that it's not all desert. He's in the felt. He's looking after his father-in-law's sheep. And he sees a bush. And it's burning. But it's, it's, it's not becoming ash. Okay, so obviously he thinks, I want to see what's going on here. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What does Moses do? And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Okay, so here's a guy, wanted to go look at a bush. Bush turned out to be a manifestation of God. He was afraid, and rightly so. It's a it's a bit more harsh and more more explicit than what Peter experienced, I think, um, but similar. Let's now go look at Isaiah, chapter six, um, and i this is beautiful. I'll read from verse one. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw. This is Isaiah talking. The Lord sitting upon a throne high, and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each of the seraphim had six wings, two with, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke and I said this is Isaiah speaking woe is me for I'm lost I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away And your sin atoned for so two accounts of people being confronted with God and feeling that fear I'd say it's that good fear what are the similarities of emotions Moses Isaiah and Peter they all responded with some form of fear what do Peter and Isaiah realize about themselves? They, they realize their sinful nature. Um, and what are the characteristics of God that is evident in Exodus and in Isaiah? It's not talked about in, uh, in, in Luke, but, but now we're getting towards what's happening. We're seeing the same reaction here. What characteristic of God is evident in those other accounts? It's His Holiness. It's His Lordship. It's His Rule. It's His Glory. So you can clearly see here, they had fear when they were confronted with God. Um, You can look at the similar reaction by the Apostle John in his vision of Christ um, in the beginning of the book of Revelation. Um, One commentator also mentions Peter's exclamation reminds us of Job's reply to God in Job 42. And Job says, this is really beautiful. Uh, He says, I had heard of you, he's talking to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This sounds to me like what's happening with Peter. Okay. Um, He had realized he was in the presence of holiness. And he, like Isaiah, understood that God's holy presence could not tolerate sin. That's why he thought about his, his sinful nature. He doesn't have the necessary righteousness To be in Jesus' presence. Um, One author comments that this realization reminds us of Jesus' words in John chapter 16, verse 10. Where he speaks of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Concerning righteousness. He knows that the Holy Spirit confronts us with the supreme righteousness of Christ. Against our own unrighteousness. Now what's the application to us then? The gospel of grace is called the good news, right? Why is it the good news? Um, we only need salvation. We only need good news if we need saving. Okay. So you're unlikely to cling onto the cross if you haven't experienced, seen, come to appreciate your own unrighteousness. And it's not your own unrighteousness compared to your wife, or your mother, or the government, or whoever is in a position of authority over you. It's your unrighteousness put next to, juxtaposed, put next to the supreme righteousness of God Himself. Um, it remind, that it, it produces fear. It does. Not a bad fear. I don't know. It's, it's not a bad fear. I think it's a great fear. It reminds me of Proverbs 1, verse 7, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Um, fools despise wisdom and instruction. So ask yourself this Have you ever had that conviction from the Holy Spirit? Have you ever come to realize, listen, I've never, I can't remember if I ever fell onto my face? Um, that's not what I'm talking about. But have you ever experienced that conviction? To know that you are a sinner. Um, have you ever thought? But hey, we're talking about a holy God. The Bible says He's a consuming fire. Um, and have you ever thought, well, who am I to speak to Him? Who am I that God thinks of me? Who am I to even think about calling Him Father? I don't want you to grovel and be depressed. Um, that's not the idea. The idea is that out of that place of a contrite heart, then the gospel becomes amazing. Then it becomes really important to you. Um, Remember the scripture that we started off with in Isaiah 66? Remember what it says? It says, I've written it down here, but this is the one to whom I will look. He is humble and contrite in spirit And he trembles at my word that's the good fear that's the good tremble Um, it produces the kind of heart and posture in a person that pleases the lord um, a person to whom he looks maybe you say well i just don't feel it i've not experienced that kind of thing that's okay it's a good realization to have that if you have that this morning my advice to you is search the scriptures okay if you want to see god you want to hear his word you want to hear him speak What's that that famous line? You want to hear God speak? Open up the Scriptures and read it aloud to you. As soon as you get into the Scriptures, you will be confronted with a holy God. And you'll see it. It's like looking in a mirror. Mark says all the time. You you must have heard it a hundred times if you're in this church. When you go into the Scriptures, it's like looking into a mirror. You're going to see yourself. And then, not only that, pray. You know, God says in His Word, He says in James, if you lack wisdom, ask for it. He'll give. Um, ask the holy spirit to show you wondrous things in his word that's in songs ask him to open your spiritual eyes ask him that you also like job might see not just hear Um, ask like david you know if you want to if you want to know how to ask and what you're allowed to ask you, you think you're not allowed to ask these things go look at david in psalm 51 right he's a man after god's own heart he's asking god to give me a clean heart Open my mouth so that I could praise you. David understands something about God here that I think we miss a lot of times. God is sovereign. He's the one that produces the good things in you. He's the one that gives the faith to you. It's a gift. If you don't have that fear, what amazing grace that you can go ask for it. Uh, David asks in Psalm 51, Restore in me a joy in your salvation. Um... Make me realize how amazing that is. Create a clean heart. Create a right spirit. And this leads into our third truth. And a sip of water. Our third truth is God's grace. So the first two were quite harsh. Um, if you're not a Christian, you're sitting here, you haven't heard a lot of preaching sermons in your life. Um, obedience, fear of the Lord. Kind of sounds really... Um, impressive in a sense but here's maybe I think the truth the third truth that that is throughout this scripture Um, it's God's grace the narrative does not end with a man on the floor it doesn't end with him Simon Peter on his knees Um, and Christ saying yeah okay sure you are sinful I'm going to leave that's not how it ends um, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, do not be afraid. That's the first thing that he says. Um, do you realize how gloriously gracious and merciful that is? Jesus would have been absolutely right to say, yes, you are a sinner and you are condemned to die. That would have been just. That would have been fair. That Nothing would have been wrong. In fact, we would have, in a worldly sense, had to applaud it to say, that is the criminal justice system working perfectly well. That's exactly what we want in our country. Okay. In a global sense. But here, the Holy One of God tells a sinful human being not to fear. Um, you'll find the fir- same response in the first chapter of Revelation. When John sees the resurrected Jesus in his glory, um, uh, the first thing that Jesus says to him, fear not. Fear um, not. In Isaiah, the seraphim, what, it, what does the seraphim do? It takes, takes the coal, burns his lips, takes away his sin and creates a scenario where he could actually be with God and in the service of God. God's grace is not only shown in that. The whole narrative is sprinkled with grace. Think about this. What did Simon do to initiate and deserve this? Nothing. He didn't see it coming. This was Jesus initiating, and he did it slowly and a nice and progr- he didn't come straight to him and say, "Okay, in the boat, we're going to go out fishing now." He said, "Hey, can I borrow your boat? I just want to, you know, sit and speak t- to the crowd." And then he said, "Well, let's let's just put out a little bit, a little bit more." Yeah, you're out, yeah, you're out. you know, he's gently working towards Simon. Um, Jesus is in control as he works to this point. Um, and right at the end he asks Simon to a new life and ministry. Um, the mere fact that God himself is standing on a beach in the Middle East preaching to a bunch of Galileans is grace. The mere fact that, that God himself became a man um, without stopping being God is both miraculous and and gracious. Um, How humble and simple and crude were the circumstances under which the glorious King of the universe is standing and teaching. So for those of us who are called to ministry, thinking, oh, well, the situation is just not quite right. Well, you know, I need to do this or that or so. You know, here's a good example. Jesus, the God of the universe, (laughs) the Creator, he who upholds the universe by the word of his power. By the way, we'll get to that now. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's standing with, in sand and dust teaching a bunch of Galileans sitting on a stinking fishing boat. What's your excuse? can't have an excuse you know, compared to that. He's your king. He's your Lord. He deserves all glory. He's a holy, holy, holy. You know, the world is filled with his glory. Um, and that's the way you teach us. That's grace. That's mercy. That's love. He didn't need to do that. Um, this is the interesting thing I heard uh, recently. You know the scripture that says Jesus is—he uh, upholds the, world, the universe by the word of his power? That's in Hebrews, uh, first chapter. Do you know that whilst Jesus was crying as a baby in a crib, he was also upholding the universe by the word of his power. You see, he was truly man and truly God. There's this very interesting heresy called the canonic theory that says, don't Jesus just stopped being God for a while. That's what it means that he emptied himself. He stopped being God for a while um, and then, you know, eventually became God again. God doesn't stop being God. He's immutable. He doesn't even start being God. He's just always been and by the way, if Jesus stops being God for a single moment, the whole universe collapses on itself because He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Isn't that amazing? It blows my mind. If, if you don't think that's wonderful, if, you're not, like, if, if, you're not, if your mind's not blown by that, I'm, I don't think your mind will be blown by anything. Um, a crying baby is being a man and He's being God at the same time. A crying baby is being a crying baby, truly so. And He's truly upholding the universe by the word of his power. No, he never stopped. He never stopped being God. R.C. Sproul about that says an interesting thing. He says, the only thing that's emptied, because the kenosis means emptying, the only thing that's, that's emptying, emptied in the kenotic theory is the minds of the people who thought about it. <laughs> that's said in jest, but that, that's Sproul, that's not me. Um, What grace that he did that for our good and our salvation, that he borrowed a boat to sit on. Um, I want to end with looking at what happens at the end of the scripture. I guess that's appropriate. Jesus is actually calling Simon to a new ministry in life here. Simon asks him to depart and Jesus tells him, don't be afraid. You're going to be fishing for people from now on. Um, And Mark and I had a nice discussion this do not be afraid is actually a bit ambiguous. I've been talking about how it's, how it's, it's referring to uh, what Simon's realized about his previous life, about him now in the present. But in the sentence, it's actually followed. It's do not be afraid, comma, you, you have a new ministry. So it's also pointing to the future. Uh, the grace continues here because Jesus is showing Simon how he's going to provide the catch. Remember, this is Simon Peter, who, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This is Simon Peter, the day of Pentecost, that preaches, delivers the sermon, and 3,000 people come come to faith in Christ. Um, And God is showing him, don't worry about the results. I'm in control. You just cast the net, and I'll put the fish in it. Isn't that amazing? Not only do we have grace that we are saved in the now and the present and it takes away the sins of our past, but God is also saying, I'm going to take care. I'm going to show you how I can take care and how I will take care of the future. Um, God calls him to be evangelist and God shows him that he'll take care of the results. It's grace upon grace. Um, Not only is there grace for your salvation, for your sinful state, but there's grace for the future as well. Um, not it's not surprising that our scripture ends with a very unceremonious statement. They left everything and followed him. Oh dear, okay, that's that's quite a big thing to say. But it isn't because of what just happened. Because of who was just revealed to Simon and to James and John, um, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, God provides a way for us to be with Him despite our sin. And then he gives us an amazing commission to be part of, of his great plan of redemption, his kingdom to come. All the while he's reassuring us, do not be afraid. Here are the three questions to summarize our three results. Right? Have you realized what your own righteousness looks like against the supreme righteousness of God? Do you have that contrite heart? Or do you need to go ask God to give you that heart, like, like David asks in Psalm 51? Are you ready to obey at his word to let down the nets? Whatever that might mean for you in your life, despite your own wisdom, despite your circumstances? Um, And have you seen the amazing grace of God's salvation? His call, his forgiveness. How will you respond to that call? Will you place Christ above everything else as the disciples did on that day? Will you make him supreme, number one priority? Count all things as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scripture. We thank you for your grace. It is an amazing grace. Lord, we uh, can only stand in awe. And we can only fall at your feet with contrite hearts knowing that we do not measure up to your holiness. We fall short of your glory um, in a way that we probably never will understand fully. Nevertheless, Lord, we know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We know that, um, Father, if we keep clinging to the cross and trusting in you, you will take care of the results of our salvation You'll finish the good work that you've started in us. Um, You promised these amazing things to us. We know that if we worry about the church, you say that you will have this church stand to the end of times. There'll be a remnant. We we know that uh, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We see how you use ordinary sinful human beings for your glory. Um, And Father, we pray that you would work those same things in us, in our church, Um, in our personal lives um, in our lives outside um, as we go about um, our daily our daily catching of fish father i pray holy spirit that you would um, remind us of these things and write them on the tables of our heart we pray in the name of jesus Amen. amen all right so let's stand and sing behold our god Thanks